The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Sharing the Cure, Best Practices for Primary Care Providers to Improve HCV Prevention, Care, and Treatment, featuring Dr. Anthony Martinez from the Jacobs School of Medicine at the University of Buffalo and Erie County Medical Center in Buffalo, New York. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash ABJ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, this is Dr. Tony Martinez from the Jacobs School of Medicine at the University of Buffalo in Erie County Medical Center in Buffalo, New York. Welcome to this educational activity on HCV. Currently in the United States, there's two and a half million people who are still chronically infected with HCV, but unfortunately only half know that they're infected. There's a lot of reasons for this, starting with the fact that hep C is primarily an asymptomatic disease. If patients do have symptoms, they tend to be mild and sort of generalized, things like fatigue or joint pain. Now, part of the problem here, too, is that we've had varying guidelines as to who to screen. So in the old days, we used to screen you based on risk factor alone. And we didn't get to where we need to be in terms of identifying individuals. The guidelines then changed and we included birth cohort screening. So this was the baby boomers, essentially, people born between 1945 and 1965. We still didn't get to identifying all the individuals that are actually chronically infected. When we look at incident or new cases of hep C in the United States, we take a look at a period of time between 2012 and 2019, the rates of hep C have nearly tripled. We estimate that there's around 55,000 new cases annually. There's also been a demographic shift. Now, in the old days, 75% of individuals with hep C were from the birth cohort, the baby boomer cohort. And what we've seen now is that most of these new cases skew in younger individuals, specifically patients who are under age 40. And you can see on the graph the rapid increase among that specific group of people. When we look at incident or new cases of hep C, a lot of this rapid increase has been directly attributable to the opiate crisis. Now really what we're talking about is injection drug use as a whole. And when we look at young individuals ages 18 to 29, opiate-related admissions have increased over 600%. Now at the same time, new cases of hep C in that specific age group have gone up 400%. And among patients ages 30 to 39, HCV has increased by over 300%, and admissions for opiate injection are up almost 85%. So as you can see, there's a direct correlation between opiate-related admissions and new cases of hepatitis C. Injection drug use is the most important risk factor for hep C infection, and this has to do with a few different reasons. Young people who inject drugs have a greater propensity to share not only needles, but the implements that are used to prepare drugs for usage. And hep C is typically acquired shortly after individuals begin injecting. Additionally, hep C can survive not only in the needles, but also in the cotton filters, the dilution water, or the cookers that are used for preparation. And hep C is transmitted at a 10 time greater rate than HIV. Now, most new cases in the United States, somewhere around 80% of new cases, are directly attributable to injection drug use. And the prevalence rates among people who do inject drugs are kind of wide-ranging, but we estimate that about 65% of these individuals have been infected with hepatitis C. 
When we look at acute cases of hep C or incident cases, this rapid rise in hepatitis C cuts across every ethnic group. As you can see on the slide, American Indians or Alaskan natives are disproportionately affected, but this rate of increase has occurred among every ethnic group. In addition to shifts in the demographic of hep C in terms of age, we've also seen a shift in the demographic in terms of gender. More and more frequently, young women of childbearing age are presenting in clinic infected with hepatitis C. And if we take a look at the prevalence rate among pregnant women, the rates on, on birth certificates in the United States have gone up nearly 90%. In some very high-risk areas, for example in Kentucky, the risks of being born to a hep C positive mom have increased to a rate of about 1 in 67. And that's compared to the rest of the United States where the rate is around 1 in 308. Now this is especially problematic because the rates of vertical transmission from mom to baby range around 6% in a hep C mono-infected individual. Now in a female who maybe has hep C and HIV co-infection, that risk of vertical transmission goes up to about 11%. In response to the hep C crisis, the World Health Organization has established a benchmark target to eliminate hep C by the year 2030. Now to achieve this, we'd have to reduce new infections of HCV by 80%, we'd have to reduce HCV-related deaths by 65%, and we'd have to diagnose 90% of chronically infected individuals and then treat 80% of them. Unfortunately, only three states are on track to achieve elimination by the year 2030. 18 states are not expected to meet these targets before 2040. A part of the reason why the United States is lagging in terms of achieving this elimination goal relates to three key barriers. Unfortunately, we still have two states that have some form of fibrosis restrictions, meaning that you have to have a certain degree of fibrosis in order to be eligible for treatment. And additionally, we have 22 states that have some form of sobriety restriction. Patient has to demonstrate a period of abstinence for either three or six months, or be engaged in substance abuse counseling to be considered eligible for treatment. And the final barrier relates to who can prescribe. We still have 15 states where you either have to be a specialist or you have to treat the hep C in conjunction with a specialist. Now these three things combined have created this delay in achieving these elimination targets. Now, these barriers have had significant effects on our care cascade. So of all the patients with hepatitis C, as we mentioned, only about 50% are aware of their diagnosis. If we go further down the cascade, only about 37% of individuals have been taken up into treatment and ultimately cured. If you're an individual who uses drugs, those rates of treatment uptake are less than 20%. So we have a lot of work to be done to improve this care cascade. COVID-19 has also had a significant effect on HCV elimination efforts. There's been a 30% increase in drug-related overdose deaths between December 2019 and December 2020. As of November 2021, in the United States, we eclipsed over 100,000 overdose deaths. Now, I showed you the correlation between opiate-related admissions and incident cases of HCV. So this is especially problematic when we're thinking about long-term what our prevalence numbers are going to look like. Another effect that COVID's had is that there's been a 73% reduction in HCV screening or testing efforts. And then finally, there's been a 22% decrease in HCV treatment during this time. 
This has created almost a perfect storm for HCV acceleration. We have more people who are actively using drugs, less people being screened, and less people being taken up into treatment. So this is going to have further implications on our care cascade. Let's move into hep C screening and the baseline evaluation of patients. In 2020, the CDC updated their recommendations for HCV screening in the United States. Now, this is really an effort to make things even more simple uh, and standardized for providers. It's essentially a move toward universal screening, and they now recommend that we screen all adult individuals 18 and over. We also have to screen all pregnant women at the time of each pregnancy. Now, this doesn't replace risk-based screening because we do have adolescents with high-risk behaviors, such as high-risk sexual behavior or even injection drug use, non-commercial tattooing. So we still have to screen those individuals based on risk. And in patients who have maybe been screened who are negative but have ongoing risk behavior, the recommendation is that we continue to periodically screen them, typically on an annual basis. Now, screening is pretty easy. We all, I think, know that we have to get a hep C antibody test. But a positive antibody simply indicates that a patient's been exposed to hep C. You need the next step to confirm chronicity. And that involves getting a hep C RNA. Now, some of your institutions may have the ability to do what we call reflex testing. So if the antibody is positive, they'll automatically do the viral load, saving you and the patient the burden of having to come back for an additional lab test. Now, keep in mind that a positive antibody, like I said, it only indicates exposure. So you take that next step, and if they have a positive viral load, that indicates the need for treatment. If the antibody is positive and the viral load is negative, that could indicate that your patient is the lucky 20% who spontaneously clears the virus, or perhaps they've been treated and cured in the past. Screening has gotten simpler. And the baseline workup has gotten simpler. So some of you might remember in the old days, this process was really complex to complete the baseline workup, evaluation, and ultimately the management. But things have gotten really easy. There's a new simplified treatment algorithm. And this is indicated for your treatment-naive adult individuals who are non-serotic. Now, there's certain people who this algorithm is not going to apply to, and that includes those individuals who have cirrhosis, individuals who have been previously treated for their hep C, those who might be co-infected with HIV or hep B, individuals who are currently pregnant, those people who have known or suspected hepatocellular carcinoma, or patients who have had a prior kidney or liver transplant. Now this basically, this algorithm, we'll walk through this together, but it involves the baseline screening test, so we confirm that the patient is chronically infected with a hep C viral load, and then we rely on a couple simple blood tests. Essentially what we need is within six months of treatment, we're going to get a CBC, a comprehensive metabolic panel, and calculate the patient's GFR. Now the guidelines recommend that any time prior to starting therapy that we get a hep C viral load, we also need HIV screening and hepatitis B serologies. Now the guidelines state that you can get the hep C viral load at any point prior to treatment, but I would recommend that you get that just before you're ready to initiate therapy. And the reason for that is that if you had someone, for example, with a low-level viremia, maybe six or eight months ago, you probably want to repeat that just to make sure that they didn't clear the infection and might actually not need therapy. And all women should have a pregnancy test prior to initiating hep C treatment. Now, we have to get some sense of how much fibrosis a patient may or may not have. 
And in the old days, we used to have to do a liver biopsy. Things have gotten dramatically easier in terms of identifying patients who might have more advanced fibrosis. Now we can use two simple calculators. One is called the APRI calculator and the other is a FIB4. And both of these tests rely on the patient's liver enzyme numbers and also the platelet count. In the case of the FIB4, that includes the patient's age. Now both of these calculators, they give you a score and that score correlates with the likelihood or not that the patient has more advanced disease. And that helps us to direct our, our management. If we're gonna manage them in a primary care setting or if we decide they have more advanced fibrosis and we need to refer them to a specialist. Some centers also have the availability of something called a fibro scan. Now this is similar to an ultrasound and it measures liver stiffness. And it gives us two key pieces of information. That degree of liver stiffness correlates with a certain degree of hepatic fibrosis. And the fiber scan also gives us a sense of how much steatosis or fat is inside the liver. Things that the fiber scan doesn't do is diagnose abnormal LFTs, for example. And critically important, it does not replace a conventional ultrasound for HCC or liver cancer surveillance. We'll talk more about that in a second. Now at baseline, I told you we had to get hepatitis B serologies. Any hep C regimen that we choose has a black box warning related to hepatitis B reactivation. Now this is a very low level risk and in post-marketing cases where this did occur, most patients had some of the reason for it, such as immunosuppressive agents or high dose steroids, for example. A lot of providers that get intimidated by hepatitis B, there's a whole multitude of tests those tests come back and there's a bunch of different combinations to interpret them. But it's really pretty simple. We can make uh, the determination on what we need to do based on three key tests. The hep B surface antigen, which if it's positive indicates that your patient's either acutely or chronically infected. The hepatitis core antibody, and that core antibody indicates that your patient's been exposed to hepatitis B. And then finally, the surface antibody, which indicates that your patient, if it's positive, has developed some degree of immunity. And this is a simple table that you can follow. This is direct from the CDC, just to help orient you in terms of how to interpret these labs. We've done our screening. We've done our baseline assessment. We're ready to treat. Who do we treat? So who do we initiate therapy in? The answer is simple. Essentially, any patient that has a detectable viral load. All individuals who have a positive HCV RNA, regardless of the value, whether it's high, whether it's low, a detectable test is a positive test and is an indication for treatment. One key update in the field of hepatitis C pertains to sobriety restrictions. There's no longer a recommended period of abstinence from drugs or alcohol recommended to be eligible for treatment for hepatitis C. So currently, active substance use substance use disorders, or injection drug use are no longer contraindications for hep C treatment. Treatment for hepatitis C has also gotten much easier. We no longer need to use interferon-based therapies. There's no more shots, no more needles. The regimens available today are all oral, safe, and highly effective. And essentially, we're down to two regimens to choose from for our treatment-naive individuals. The first regimen available is called Cefosbivir Valpatisvir. This is a combination product that inhibits how the virus replicates. It's taken as a single tablet dosed once daily for a duration of 12 weeks. The second regimen available for treatment is called Glucaprasvir Pibrenisvir. 
This is also a combination product, but the only big difference here is that it's three tablets still taken once daily with food, but for a shorter duration of eight weeks. Another key differentiator with GP is that we can't use it in our patients who have moderate or severe hepatic impairment or who have had a history of hepatic decompensation in the past. And this regimen also should not be used in combination with atizanivir or rifampin. No matter what regimen we choose for our hep C management, both of these offer a 98% chance at cure. And we'll define what cure means in a second. These new regimens for hepatitis C management have clearly become far easier to use, and there's been some dramatic improvements in terms of drug-drug interactions, but there still are some key drug-drug interactions that we need to be aware of. So at baseline, prior to initiating treatment, we need to make sure that we're considering any of these potential interactions. Now, some of the key differentiators. With SoftVel, we want to avoid acid-suppressive agents, such as a PPI. They're not recommended to be co-administered uh, with that particular regimen. We also need to avoid amiodarone at the risk of developing symptomatic bradycardia. With GP, there's a couple key differentiators, the main of one of which relates to oral estrogen-based therapy. And really what we're talking about here is uh, oral contraceptives, for example. If it's given as a depot shot or an implant, we're fine. And there's some key interactions with both drugs that pertain to things like statins or anti-epileptics. The, the anti-epileptics run the risk of potentially reducing the efficacy of either regimen. Now there's a great tool that you can utilize called from the University of Liverpool. It's called Hep Drug Interactions. And this is an app that you can download on your device and you can cross check any potential drug-drug interactions prior to initiating therapy. Now once we've picked our regimen, we've initiated treatment, we've screened our patient, we've diagnosed them and completed our baseline evaluation. We've initiated whichever regimen we choose. Now what about on treatment monitoring? Well, in our non-serotic treatment-naive patients, there really is none. Uh, there's no response-guided therapy. There's really no labs that are required while they're on treatment. Now, there is a bit of a caveat if the patient's on something, for example, like warfarin. We're obviously going to be monitoring their INR, for example. Another example where we might want to check labs pertains to our patients who have diabetes. There's a correlation between hepatitis C and diabetes. And when the patients become aviremic, meaning their viral load becomes undetectable, you may see improvements in their glycemic control, and the patients may not need the same dose of some of their diabetes medications. Our patient undergoes therapy for either eight weeks or 12 weeks. And then we wait a period of three months from treatment completion. At the end of that three-month period, we repeat their viral load. And if the viral load is negative, the patient's achieved what we call sustained virologic response, synonymous with cure. And we want to let our patients know that it is curable, that they are cured. We don't want to use words like dormant or in remission. So we wait that period of three months, repeat the viral load, and if it's negative, you can tell your patient that they've achieved a cure. Now that our patients have been cured of their hepatitis C, what comes next? There's really, in a treatment-naive, non-serotic individual, there's no liver-related follow-up that's recommended after they've been cured. Now, if they still have ongoing risk factors, that's important that we continue to screen them for hep C. Keep in mind, we're not going to screen them with an antibody test, as that's going to remain positive for the duration of their life. 
So in those individuals who've been treated and cured, ongoing screening has to be done with a hep C viral load. Now I told you that the cure rates were 98% with either regimen. What about the 2% of patients that don't achieve a cure? Those individuals do have treatment options available to them and they should be referred for specialty management. Now what about our compensated cirrhotics? They also have an algorithm that's been simplified, but there's a couple of key differences. So who's eligible for this particular algorithm? These are our treatment-naive individuals that we've determined to be cirrhotic by any means. So that might be through those calculators that I showed you earlier. Perhaps they had a prior liver biopsy. Maybe they have signs of, or symptoms of cirrhosis based on exam. They may have radiological evidence, or they might have been diagnosed with a fibro scan. So who would not be eligible for this simplified algorithm on the cirrhotic side? Any individual that has a history of current decompensation, and we measure decompensation by the presence of ascites or hepatic encephalopathy, and we pay attention to some key labs that should tip you off. A total bilirubin, if it's elevated, an albumin, if it's low, and an INR, if it's prolonged. Those are sort of the three key hallmark tests that tip you off that your patient has advanced disease and if they're uh, distorted enough that the patient has decompensation. Any patient that's had prior hepatitis C treatment is not eligible for this particular algorithm. And we also would exclude anybody who's co-infected with hepatitis B or HIV, currently pregnant, has a history of hepatocellular carcinoma, had a prior transplant, whether it was renal or kidney, and individuals who have end-stage renal disease. Now there's a few key differences here compared to the algorithm in our non-serotic patients. In those individuals, we needed labs within six months. In the serotics, it's a different time period. We need the labs done within three months prior to initiating therapy. Now some of the labs are the same. We're still gonna get a CBC and a CMP, but what's different here is that we're also gonna get an INR, and that's part of those key hallmark tests that I just mentioned earlier. Now prior to starting therapy, we're also gonna get our viral load. We're gonna screen for HIV and hepatitis B. But there's one key addition in this particular algorithm that we didn't see in the non-serotics, and that relates to the hepatitis C genotype. Now, that's important because if we choose to treat a genotype three patient and we utilize SOFVEL, those individuals still require resistance testing. And that's the only group of individuals that we really need to get resistance testing on anymore in this current treatment uh, regimen. Now our cirrhotic patients are a bit more fragile than the non-cirrhotic individuals. So on treatment, there is some monitoring that's recommended. Typically in our clinic, we check labs within two weeks and then monthly, depending on what regimen we're using. Now if a patient again is a diabetic or is on something like warfarin, we're gonna be checking those labs routinely uh, no matter what. Now there's another key difference when your patient completes their eight or 12 weeks, and in our cirrhotics and our non-cirrhotics, the treatment durations are exactly the same. There's no difference. The definition of cure or SVR is also the same. But one key difference is that in the cirrhotic individuals, even after they've been cured of their hepatitis C, they need ongoing lifelong surveillance for hepatocellular carcinoma. So that involves getting an ultrasound with or without an AFP level every six months for life. All of these individuals should also have an endoscopy at baseline to assess for varices as they may be at risk for having portal hypertension. 
Now again, if patients who have been cured, if they're cirrhotic, if they have ongoing risk behavior, we're gonna screen those individuals the same as we would a non-cirrhotic patient. So they're gonna to continue to need a viral load check, likely annually. In our cirrhotic individuals who did not achieve cure, they also have additional treatment options and should be referred for specialty management. So I think when we look at the, the grand scheme of hep C, probably 90% of individuals who are currently infected today could be managed either in a primary care setting or some other non-traditional setting, whether it's an addiction medicine clinic or you know, someplace like that. The 10% that I would say still would be in the specialty arena are those patients who uh, have a history of decompensated cirrhosis in the past, patients who have current decompensation. Luckily, that's a, an, an ever-shrinking group uh, in the hep C universe. Some of the patients that I would say maybe the specialists would, would manage would be the co-infected patient with hepatitis B or HIV. Uh, you know, I know on the algorithms, it says that people with end-stage renal disease are not eligible for the simplified algorithm. But both of these regimens are actually indicated uh, for people with end-stage renal disease, including dialysis. And there's nothing different that you do. You don't dose it any differently. The durations are the same. So, you know, those are patients that you, you probably could, but based on this algorithm should be referred out. So it's kind of a small group that uh, can't be managed in the primary care setting. We have a large MAT clinic and we screen all of our individuals at baseline and then we screen them anywhere between every six and 12 months. So there are instances where I've had to tell patients that they have hep C. Uh, and there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of stigma related to it uh, and surrounding it. There's a lot of fear that the, the treatment, you know, is like in the old days, they're worried about becoming sick. They're worried about side effects. Many of these patients had uh, a family member who went through therapy in the old days, and they have almost this interferon-based PTSD because they saw what that individual went through. So a lot of patients don't know that the regimens have changed, that they're oral, they're minimal side effects, that they're really short and that they're you know, so highly curable. So it, there's a, a mix of emotions, I would say, for a lot of patients. Uh, the one consistent emotion though, is when you tell them that they're cured. And you know, in our clinic, we let them graffiti the wall, they ring a cure bell, and uh, it's, it's pretty amazing to see. So uh, that relief, that joy, when they get cured, they're allowed to kind of close out a chapter of their lives that they're really trying hard to move on from. So up front, the, the range of emotions and on the back end of it, uh, it's sort of universal happiness. <laughs> in conclusion, I think what we've tried to show you today is that hepatitis C is a growing problem in the United States, particularly in young individuals. And a move toward universal screening will help identify individuals, improve linkage to care, treatment initiation, and ultimately prevent new infections, thus moving us closer to our elimination targets. As you can see, the baseline hepatitis C workup has become much more streamlined. Treatment has also become easier with all oral pangenotypic regimens that are safe and highly effective. And finally, the streamlining of HCV management allows for the decentralization 
of hep C management from the specialty arena into the primary care setting and beyond. This ends our discussion for today. I hope you found this activity informative and useful to your practice. And I encourage you to access the other activity features that are part of this curriculum. Thank you very much for participating. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash ABJ 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated.